AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T Threat Track for November 24th, 2015. We're getting close to the end of years, guys. So, uh, and we're gonna have to work on our predictions for next year, but hey, this program provides network security highlights discussion and countermeasures for cyber threats. Uh, we're joined today by Manny Ortiz. Hi. Welcome, Manny. Matt Kaiser, welcome, Matt. How's it going? And online by Jim Clausing. Hi, Jim. Hi, guys. I'm Brian Rexrode, and uh, Matt, like I said, we're gonna have to do our predictions for next year pretty soon, so mm -hmm. we'll have that coming up. Uh, not in this program, but uh, probably the next one. Uh, nevertheless, in the meantime, I think you have a little bit of a story about how uh, we shouldn't make assumptions about what we're talking to. This is, this is generally <laughs> true, yes, but in this specific case, very true. So some interesting research um, by uh, I hope I'm pronouncing this right. Hyperka Ma of Tencent's, again, China. Shh, I can't, I don't know how to pronounce it. Sanwu? Sanwu, we'll go with we'll that. We'll go with Sanwu. Yeah, let's go with that one. All right, Sanwu Lab. <laughs> um, research that came out at uh, PACSEC JP uh, about barcodes and barcode security. Now, it's been known for a while that there's, it's possible to use a barcode as an attack vector in systems where if you scan this barcode, it, it directly tries to interpret it as. In the input to something. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, if I wanted to directly push this into some sort of SQL statement and then the, the intent would be to put it into the database, uh, you could potentially do SQL injection based on the contents of that barcode. Mm. Uh, and, you know, because it doesn't look like it's anything malicious, because most people can't visually read a barcode, uh, sometimes it can be used as an attack well, vector. And, and more often than not, you would expect that a barcode reader is, is basically creating a query that would go into some kind of a database that translates that barcode into something tangible, right? Sure. Something meaningful, it, you'd right? assume that it would behave as expected. Yeah. Um, this is not about exactly that. What this, this research is about is that there are certain types of barcodes that have data formats that can be interpreted as control codes. Things in ASCII that, you know, if you hold the control button and press S or A, it does a special function. Mm -hmm. Now, it turns out that some barcode readers are capable of sending these to the system from uh, things like code 128, which is one of the barcode formats. And as it turns out, most barcode readers are treated by the computers they're plugged into as keyboards. So this, you know, anybody who's ever pressed a control code on a keyboard knows if it's, you know, a keyboard, the system will say, oh, somebody tried to type that. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's possible for certain types of, of ASCII codes to, to do things like control O, control P, a, a limited subset. Um, so in particular applications, that might allow you to open a dialogue or print or do something. Uh, so those are kind of interesting. The more interesting ones are with ADF, which I believe stands for Advanced Data Formatting, where you can sort of queue up a lot of data to be sent all at once using these mm. control codes. So I say I scan barcode one that says begin this session, scan barcode two, hold down the control key, scan barcode three, four, five, build out a string of things to send, and then, says, you know, and then terminate that session and dump it all at the system. Hmm. Uh, so some very cool demos where you, they walk up with a, a boarding pass, scan that, and it pops up a shell on the, on the laptop that it's connected to wow. using nothing but these commands. And this is kind of neat. Um, so the, the coolest thing that I found out of this was that you could take that session, 
instead of printing out 50 barcodes and going one, two, three, four, you put it on uh, an e-paper screen, mm -hmm. something like a Kindle or a Nook, uh, and you write a program that does, you know, for one second display this barcode, then do the next one, and you just hold the thing under there, and it builds it out for you and does the attack. Mm. So that's kind of so neat. So I'm, I'm just trying to imagine the look on the customs agent's face when you... Oh, like <laughs> if it was on your passport? Can you imagine? Oh, man. Well, I mean, it's... So it's one thing to go into a system where you scan something that you have, but the somebody else is looking at the screen of what's actually being scanned. Mm -hmm. It's a, no a whole nother thing when you go into, let's say, one of those uh, those self-service scanning. Oh, man, mm -hmm. you mean at the, at the uh, your at local the supermarket? Uh, yeah. And you're saying, right. well, I'd like to buy one of these. Boom. And now you've popped the shell on some box somewhere, potentially. Right. Yeah, Just depending on how the input's used. Yeah. It's a possibility. Yeah. So the, uh, I mean, again, I guess this is, this is a case where perhaps a mis- uh, or not fully addressing the interface, making some assumptions about what things are talking to other things, perhaps needs to be addressed a little bit better to make sure that there are controls in there. It's, it's actually, even before the SQL injection, it's kind of a similar thing. It's, uh, there, there's information being transferred that perhaps wasn't originally intended in the first place. And I think one of the basic premises around security is making sure, not making sure that it does its function I mean, that's the functional testing, but the security testing, making sure it doesn't do what it's not intended to perform. And uh, this is a good example of that. All right, cool. All right, Manny, let's go to you. And, um, you know, I was, uh, uh, there have been some open source projects around being able to install your own firmware onto home router devices. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's some potential advantages to that. And I think, you know, my personal opinion is that we're going to have a growth in sort of open platform devices that uh, where your own software can be installed. But I guess we have to be a little careful about that. Can you tell us a bit? Yeah, so uh, I, I ran across this story and uh, it was just interesting because I hadn't seen anything about this and it, this goes back a little ways and um, I, I hadn't realized that something had transpired earlier in the year. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess what brought it to light now is that, the, that this week marked the end of the reply comment period. I'm not exactly sure what that reply comment period is. Um, I guess the FCC has this, uh, puts out some sort of policy and then allows some allows period of time, right, yes. from feedback on it. So this marked the end and um, one of the, one of the, the, I guess the rulings that they had put out earlier in the year um, had caused quite a bit of stir and that was the, the whole Wi-Fi uh, router and mm -hmm. the ability to uh, modify the firmware on it. So the, 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 basically the proposal or the, the draft regulation basically stated that you weren't allowed to change the exactly. firmware on a home router device. Exactly. Yeah. So they just stated, hey, you know, we, we want to stop folks from, you know, manufacturers from allowing firmwares mm -hmm. to, to be um, overwritten, you know, um, and wanted, and the, the, the policy actually stated that they wanted the manufacturers to prove that they had um, um, a manner to stop that from actually happening, mm -hmm. right? So they wanted that actually to be proof that, you know, hey, look, you, you know, we're stopping folks from actually being able to write, overwrite the firmware on our devices. Mm -hmm. um, now. Uh, there was a couple caveats to this particular ruling, which was um, it only affected devices operating in the 
the uni bands or the spectrum used for the five gigahertz Wi-Fi. Mm -hmm. um, so that limited it down. Um, so again, it caused quite a bit of stir because we all know that there are quite a few open source, you know, DDWRT, uh, Tomato, open work, uh, right? So there's a whole bunch of them that you know sort of ex you know expand the the functionality uh, of of a, a router today. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I don't think there's been much in the in the sense of maliciousness in that overriding. I think it, it's mostly for it just expanding the capabilities of that router. But right. unfortunately, as we all know, um, it does open up some things to being abused. Let's say so. Uh, I think it, it's a source code platform, so it, it would allow anybody to basically modify it in their own way and perhaps load it on the device. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, on the 12th of November, um, they um, issued an update to the ruling saying that they hadn't intended to encourage um, the prevention of modifications across the board. Um, that um, that what they actually meant was that they wanted to um, simplify um, against mods that would take a device out of RF compliance. Right. So, so the primary concern around all of this was really to make sure that the signal that's coming out of those devices is not going to interfere with other bands, interfere with other devices, be too powerful, that type of thing. Exactly. And, and one, of the, one of the examples that they stated in here was that I guess they had seen in some cases, extreme cases I'm assuming, mm -hmm. where in airports it was, they could see that it was affecting the, the Doppler radar, uh, weather radar. Well, that would be not so good. Not so good, right? Not so good, exactly. Yep. So, uh, so again, so they, you know, so they came out again and said, "Hey, look, this is, you know, we didn't intend to put a, you know, a an absolute rule mm -hmm. here. This is what we actually intended for this to to mean. That we we didn't want that modification to allow this. Mm -hmm. The problem is, though, is, and I think we talked about a little bit about this earlier, was that unfortunately, um, the 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 chips on the routers today both contain the CPU and the radio on a single chip. Mm -hmm. and, and other things. The, the system on a chip sometimes right. has things like USB interfaces, right. uh, other peripherals. Right. So, so unfortunately, what that means is if you, if you stop, if you, if you don't allow them to modify one thing, you, you sort of, the way that it's set up today, you sort of can't have it one way and not the other. Yeah, so, the hardware controls aren't really there to facilitate controlling one thing, changing firmware with, for one aspect and not necessarily right. having impact on Right, other so what they're saying the basically is if this policy goes through, we're just gonna have to lock it down completely. We're just not going to be allow allowed anybody to modify. You can't just separate the RF well, and then from the until perhaps they come with a next generation device, which might be which, higher cost. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Yes. But, but you've also got the problem that manufacturers aren't just designing for the U.S. market. Mm -hmm. So if they're building the same system on a chip-based router for all of their markets, uh, you know, if you have to make that separation, now you've got to add another model to your line that uses a different system on a chip with an external, you know, whatever firmware for yeah. controlling the radio. Yeah. And that's that's. Probably most businesses aren't going to be amenable to that. They're... It depends on the market. Yeah. Depends on the market. Yeah. <laughs> and depending so. on how it's locked down, how does that affect, you know, firmware updates from the manufacturer? How, I mean, we have the problem already where nobody's updating their routers with new firmware anyway. But 
you know, if there are security vulnerabilities and the manufacturer sends one out, depending on how it's locked down, is that going to make it much more difficult for the user to apply security patches? Yeah, it's an interesting point, Jim. You know, I, I, I was sort of taking an optimistic view that given these constraints that are required, that it might inspire them to do a little better job with the opportunity to update devices. Um, but hey, that was, you know, <laughs> it could go either way here. <laughs> you still might be able to do, if they yeah. wanted to do that. Yeah. <laughs> they could still do something with code signing where if, you know, those updates are legitimate updates only that's signed by the manufacturer. Right. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. So, you know, I guess just uh, as a point of clarification for folks that might not already be aware, the FCC is re uh, basically responsible for allocating spectrum and managing, you know, radio wave spectrum. Yep. And um, I, I, I suspect, you know, the, the 2.4 gigahertz was the typical Wi-Fi in the past. They added 5 gigahertz. Right. Um, it apparently has a little closer proximity to some other things that might get interfered with. Yeah. Um, I don't know if this is exactly true, but my impression was that basically 2.4 gigahertz originally came out. That was unlicensed spectrum, partly because I think it's the same frequency that microwave ovens work on. And it was considered basically unlicensed experimental space. <laughs> and a lot of these cons basically consumer devices started using it, took off, and now they're kind of adding some additional uh, bands to it, you know, they're perhaps even more effective, but then perhaps have closer proximity to other things that could get interference and it needs to be controlled so that it doesn't. Hence yep. Doppler radar, for example. That would be pretty sensitive stuff if you're trying to bounce signals off of water. Hmm. <laughs> you know, that, that, made me, that makes me think a little bit about systems like um, software-defined radio. Right. Now, what the restrictions are on that when you've got a system that's designed specifically to start messing around at that lowest level of, right. of radio transmission, mm -hmm. you could do something you know, intentionally to mess with Doppler radar using software-defined radio just by building it out in something like new radio. Right. So I'm, but that I'm would be illegal. Yes, it would. <laughs> well, I, I agree with you. I'm just saying that there doesn't, at least from what I'm reading or hearing here, is yeah. that there doesn't seem to be any sort of provision in this law that says you can't take your software-defined radio and have the exact same effect as modifying a consumer router would have. Yeah, I, I, I think this was perhaps a case where they were trying to um, control a more uh, broader industry, perhaps, where the people might be doing something in a more... Uh, uh, where it might be easier to get your hands on the, the, the hardware that allows you to do this? Is that what we're saying? Or Well, it's a good question. Okay. We can only speculate on the motivation yeah. for one thing versus the other, but th nevertheless, you know, uh, basically changing radio behavior, I think, is already a, a regulated activity, and I think perhaps what they were doing here was trying to reinforce that in a particular industry area, and uh, trying to make some clarification on what the what the true intent behind it is. It, this is a this is a balance area where I, I think perhaps separating the modules is perhaps the best thing to do if you want to have an open source platform. My hope is that we see more hardware platforms that are open, so that you have the opportunity to do development and you know uh, create new kinds of functions on on these platforms uh, without necessarily the constraints and perhaps uh, improvements from a security standpoint. You know, being able to update the software automatically, things like that. Okay, so uh, Jim, let's go to you. And um, you know, uh, we always have something on IoT here. This one's uh, a, a little, perhaps not new or different, but certainly intriguing. <laughs> 
Yeah, th this one was kind of strange. Uh, I happened across it on uh, on the uh, on one blog, and then found some references back to where it originally was published. But um, there's a, a group out of Boca Raton, Florida, that they're, they're a company that their job was, they were trying to develop a cloud-based video storage system for government agencies and police departments to store um, video from body cams. And so they got a, a bunch of body cams from one particular manufacturer and plugged them into their laptops and all of a sudden their antivirus went nuts. And what they discovered is that this, uh, that they had conficker infections on, on these body cams. And the, the first thing that struck me is this reminds, reminded me a whole lot of, oh, it must have been eight or ten years ago, there were a bunch of um, USB picture frames that came out that were that had malware on them, and that's it, it. Looks like something similar happened here. Uh, it looks like this manufacturer had an infection in their enterprise, and as they were, you know, setting up these body cams, um, they got infected with Config, or they basically had they had an autorun.inf file placed on the internal storage of the body cam. And when you plug that into a, a Windows system to download the video off of it, you know, then it gets treated as a, you know, as an external, as a, just a normal external USB device. And if you've got auto runs turned on, then it would attempt to execute this. Configure is like six, more than six years old now. If you've got up-to-date antivirus, hopefully you'll catch it. But, you know, we've been seeing in the internet weather since we started doing this show that it still lives on. So, um, yeah, so this this just got my attention. It's another, you know, how many people would think about, you know, their body cam as being a potential source of infecting their network. But, uh, yeah, I'm not sure what conclusions to draw from it. I just have to shake my head. Yeah. <laughs> this is a particular case. Uh, I personally don't wear a body cam. But, uh, you know, for the police that are wearing body cams, you would be particularly concerned, I think, about a police department protect, potentially being infected by something like this. So, Jim, what systems would we expect? You mentioned the, uh, the auto run, but aren't some of the newer systems already kind of protected against the, in their default configuration against this type of malware? Yeah, um, the, the, the latest versions of, of Windows, it's... If it's not the default, it's easy to to set to not you know automatically mount and read and fire up whatever is in the the auto runs.inf file on on USB devices when you plug them in. Uh, but you know that was that was a a feature in uh, years past where as soon as you plugged it in, then it would start up whatever you know, start up the video or, you know, 
install the software just by plugging it in. Um, mm -hmm. That's because of of cases like config or um, that is no longer the default, but there are still you know, there are still XP systems out there. So yeah, I think it uh, it gives you a prompt to see if you want to if you want to execute it, right? Right. Yeah. The the new one is it it prompts you what do you want to do with this? What, do you want to run the you know the setup or you know fire off the whatever? But you you actually made a good point there though um, with police departments. And the you know and these body cams, the you know the fact that there's malware on there is is kind of scary in a number of ways. I mean, just the the potential exposure of of information that isn't supposed to be in the public domain and potentially getting out to a thief or, or something of that sort. And a reminder that we're talking about Configure here, which was is a specific example, but the fact that this kind of an issue occurred, you know, other types of malware could potentially get on these devices and uh, become a propagator for other types of malware that devices are more susceptible to. Right. And, and, and this batch came, you know, essentially pre-infected. Um, it got infected at the, at the manufacturers. But as I said, when you plug these things in, they're essentially just another USB disc. You know, you're, copying the video off of it and then you're deleting it well at the if your if your windows box is itself infected there's nothing to stop it from dropping something back on there that you know then the next time it gets plugged into a different system it could infect that well it's all the better it was discovered perhaps hopefully earlier than rather than later so i have to i have to ask here because um, we brought it, we just brought it up Whatever happened with the uh, video picture frame? That's a seems to be a almost a. It's a still. Dead, it's, it's, oh, it's you know, as the hardware? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I you know. think they call it. A, I think they call it a smartphone now. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> they, they timed that a little wrong with the smartphones coming out, and yeah. I think that. Uh, well, it, it had its little heyday, and then right. the, and we've moved on. That's just part of life, right? <laughs> I, you know, Jim, since you had the uh, discussion about Configure, I thought I'd uh, include a, uh, just a look at the scan probing activity on port 445 TCP, service management block associated with Microsoft devices. This is uh, one of the vectors in which Configure would propagate. You described another one where it could propagate through a USB device as well. This was the sort of the network vector and then there was the device vector. But looking back at the last year of activity, you know, we've been tracking this for several years. I think you said it's uh, it's almost six years old now. I think it's actually perhaps more. Wasn't it 2008 when Configure came out? It was, it was around 2008, yeah. yeah. So I think it's, uh, yeah, well, nevertheless, um, I'll trust your memory before mine. Uh, looking here at the last year of activity, and this is a 10-day moving average that we're looking at. So, you know, each, um, each hour is actually looking at the la previous 10 days and averaging over that. So we get a little smoother curve, less spikiness in the activity. But we see uh, basically a net increase in the amount of scanning activity on this port. Now, this might not be all config. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's not. You know, you can also do password guessing against file sharings that are shares that are uh, available on the internet. Uh, through this avenue as well. But nevertheless, there's still an awful lot of probing activity and a good portion 
of that is associated with the uh, basically the conficker conficker worm that um, and and just for folks that um, are, are not familiar with this to our knowledge this conficker had never really been used for anything it did a great job propagating got everybody nervous about uh, what it was going to be but uh, and it had uh, some really sophisticated capabilities in terms of command control, but uh, to, uh, uh, to our knowledge had not really ever been used for anything. We feel that, um, or the belief was that the, uh, the folks that created this malware were exorbitantly more successful at infecting devices than they expected, created a lot of attention, and basically backed off and said, you know, let's, uh, they probably built a different botnet that was a little more cloaked. Yeah, our, our producer tells me that Conficker actually turns seven this month. It was November okay, of 2008. So happy Great. birthday, Conficker. <laughs> happy birthday. <laughs> okay, so uh, just taking a look at uh, a couple of other items here. You know, and I'll show you the difference here. This is just a look at the composite of reflective denial service attack activity over the last year here. And uh, again, using that 10-day moving average. And just to give you a little bit of comparison, I'll go to the next slide here, which shows without the 10-day moving average. And you see how much spikier this is. It's much more difficult to read. So we're going to get a couple of uh, valuable attributes from both of these. First of all, looking at the primary sources, the primary sources that we see here, port 1900 UDP, that's a simple service discovery protocol. Um, that's uh, basically intended to be a LAN protocol, but a lot of um, you know not well-designed uh, home router devices expose that to the internet, and consequently it can be used for reflective attacks. Port zero UDP is generally associated with fragmented packets, and there are a couple of these protocols that generate fragmented packets. In particular, I think it's Character Generator generates uh, fragmented packets, and I believe oh, and uh, DNS can generate fragmented packets as well. Uh, port 123 UDP, that's network time protocol, uh, that can be used in reflection attacks. You know, there are a lot of devices that are exposing uh, network time protocol to the internet as a server. Uh, you know, almost every device uses it as a client, but uh, it turns out it's actually the same process that runs as a client as a, and a server. If you don't control one or you configure it properly, it will expose both of those. And then uh, DNS, uh, reflective denial service attacks can be uh, facilitated through DNS servers, and so it's important to try to control. You can't turn DNS off, it needs to be there, but uh, it's important to con control who can access um, uh, recursive servers. And then uh, 1900 UDP, this is character generator, and uh, quite frankly, there's not really a good purpose for a character generator these days. I mean, it, it, you know, it was basically a connectivity test protocol. Uh, you send it a request, it sends you back the alphabet and some things, and it can fragment packets, so it'll generate uh, some additional traffic. Some others, uh, Akamai had come out with a report recently, they talked about uh, uh, RDP, that's uh, port 111 UDP. Uh, we already we've uh, talked about in a number of programs uh, simple ma network management protocol that's 161 UDP, uh, 520 uh, routing information protocol, which is a very basic you know basically broadcasts your routes out. Uh, there's basically a request function associated with that. Port 137 UDP that's uh, basically name server associated with Microsoft uh, devices and um, that uh, can be used in reflective attacks. And then uh, last but not least is 5093, which is an IBM, I think it's a key manager protocol for uh, software licenses. 
And uh, I haven't seen too much of that activity here, but nevertheless, let's take a little closer look at the bands here. And uh, these are relatively in order. So at the top of the list, 1900. Next one here is a fragmentation. So the fragmentation would be contributors from DNS and character gener generators. So that's uh, basically these uh, third and fourth bands, the uh, purple and the uh, turquoise here. And then um, uh, in the middle here, we have uh, basically network time protocol. And then at the bottom, you can start to see, see how this is sort of growing a little bit. I probably should have had a blown up image of it and perhaps the producers can show it a little bit more closely, but uh, we are starting to see some more activity, particularly around uh, 161 UDP. There's some growth there. Um, and uh, we're starting to see, well, I should point out here, since the uh, perhaps the middle of the summer, some significant decrease in 1900 UDP. So a couple observations there. Now, um, this basically shows, uh, we're measuring this in gigabits per second, so you can see roughly uh, uh, how that shows up on the network. Now, what's worthwhile is to try to look at, uh, this is on an hourly basis, and you can see where things have spiked up. So there's a lot of spiky activity that occurs where particular attacks are larger than others, and uh, some of these, you know, getting upwards around uh, 40, exceeding 40 gigabits per second. Now, the actual attacks are probably much larger. These um, you know, this, uh, this analysis doesn't cover the entire internet, obviously, uh, but it gives you some idea of what ty types of things are going on and uh, relative measurements of that activity. So, what we thought we'd do here is uh, a short segment. It's very close, if uh, not just after Thanksgiving when you're viewing this program here. So uh, we wanted to share a little bit about what we are thankful for. And uh, Jim, why don't you go ahead first here? Okay, thanks, Brian. Uh... The first thing I am thankful for is the open source community for providing so many tools. I, there's not a day that goes by that in my job I don't use, you know, an open source tool, uh, you know, a forensics tool or, a, you know, a network monitoring tool. So I am thankful to those in the community who do the hard work so that I don't have to reinvent the wheel. Yeah, that's actually a very good point. I agree with you thoroughly. You know, the open source community really has been going strong. And um, what I, I think it's important to remember, the open source community isn't a gift from everywhere. <laughs> it actually is one where you have an opportunity to contribute to it as well. And that's how it's really pooling resources, what it, it comes right down to. So very good point, Jim. I, I agree with you thoroughly. Matt, let's go to you. What do you what are you thankful for? Well, I'm I'm thankful for the just the sheer amount of open source research that's being done these days in terms of security vulnerabilities, in terms of actor you know group research. Mm -hmm. It's it's so much to read, and I, I enjoy every minute of reading it. So, to the people who are out there doing this research, thank you. You make my life interesting, and you give us a lot to think on and work with. So, thanks. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think. Um uh, generally speaking, in, in order to be prepared to defend yourself, you really have to have a good understanding of what's going on uh, out in the world. And uh, the research gives us good insights into those types of activities. And not just vulnerabilities, but basically understanding, getting a better understanding of the attack uh, campaigns that are taking place, documenting those, it really is a, a strong contribution. And a lot of the organizations that are generating that 
um, you know, they're in the business of cybersecurity. They're drawing attention to their products, their brands, and uh, showing their, their capabilities uh, you know, along those lines. And uh, hopefully it's paying off for them because it's certainly uh, a value contribution to our understanding of threats and being able to be prepared to protect against them. Absolutely. Yep. Manny, what are you thankful for? So I took a little bit of a different spin on this one um, since I didn't think we were going to get so serious on these. So uh, <laughs> the thing that I'm most thankful for is that the, the new Star Wars movie is coming out in less than a month. <laughs> I mean, you know. Uh, <laughs> no, but all in, in all seriousness, what I'm thankful for is uh, is our wonderful legal team here at AT and T. Oh. Yeah. You know, I have to I have to appreciate that. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna second that because you know the reason we are able to bring this program to the public is because we've gotten a good cooperation from our legal team, our Absolutely. public relations team, yep. and um, you know I I hope that this is a good contribution to the community and that uh, the people appreciate it. We get a lot of uh, good feedback, so uh, very much appreciative for uh, uh, their support in the program. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I'm kind of along the same lines here. Um, you know, I, I'm thankful to be working in an organization that's always trying to sort of push the envelope in terms of the technology and the methods and the capabilities that we have available to us to impro improve security. And, um, you know, I think that's just, uh, it's sort of in the, the roots, the, the you know, ancestry of AT&T. And uh, we continue to draw that forward. And I'm also very thankful for the team that, uh, that you know, you folks that really are uh, the ones that make it happen. So, I mean, certainly in the threat analysis aspect, there are certainly a lot of other folks in AT&T that contribute in terms of developing technology and implementing it and making it, uh, making it so. so. I'm very thankful. So this is a great time of year to be thankful. And uh, we hope that uh, our, our viewers are thankful for something as well. And uh, we'll, be, we'll be more thankful when the security problems go down next year, right? I'm sure that they will, Brian. <laughs> yeah, probably not anytime soon. So uh, we're thankful for the job security that yeah. the security problems <laughs> give right. us. That's our show for today. We thank you for joining us. <laughs> We're thankful that you're here. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, we certainly welcome your feedback. You can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. And you can find AT&T Threat Track on the AT&T Tech Channel, on YouTube, and on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at AT&T Security. At ATT Security. Um, and uh, first of all, thank you, Jim. Thank you, Manny. Thank you, Matt. I'm Brian Rexrode. We'll be back next week with a new episode, and until then, keep your network safe. <laughs>